Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Come and Reason Bible Study here in Collegedale, Tennessee. Uh, my name is Lori Atkins, substituting for Tim Jennings, who is still out at the General Conference session in San Antonio. He's going to be back next Saturday, the 18th. Let's start our study with prayer. Father in heaven, we're so thankful as we, as we look back at, at the provision and the blessing that you have heaped on this ministry in the last five years. Um, we pray for, for Tim and Christy and Simon and the team that are out in San Antonio right now. Give them, give them strength and courage and let them finish strong um, at the end of this conference and stay up and excited about this message because the people are so, so recipient and so hungry for it. Um, Father, be with us here in our class today. Bless our study, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, we're studying this week lesson four in the quarterly biblical missionaries. And this lesson is titled The Jonah Saga. Probably one of the most familiar stories, I would say, in the entire Bible. And it, it really was sort of a saga, wasn't it? Um, so, because it's a saga with lots of drama, I thought I would start out with maybe a little funny story. Um, some of you may know that uh, my mom is, has a budding career in stand-up comedy, so I'm always kind of on the lookout for material for her. I found this little ditty that happened to include the story of Jonah. This is why you should never argue with children. <clears throat> we had a little girl. She was talking to her teacher in school about whales. The teacher said, it was physically impossible for a whale to swallow a human. Because even though the whale is a very large mammal, its throat is actually very small. And the girl stated that Jonah was indeed swallowed by a whale. Irritated, the teacher reiterated that a whale could not swallow a human. It was physically impossible. The little girl said, well, when I get to heaven, I'm just going to ask Jonah. The teacher said, well, what if Jonah went to hell? The little girl replied, then you ask him. <laughs> no theological concepts being taught there, just a little lighthearted comedy. <laughs> so, yeah, the story of Jonah, well known, kind of a truth is stranger than fiction story, chock full of valuable object lessons we can learn from. So let's think about some of the, the more common object lessons that we've learned from the story of Jonah in our lives. Can we, let's try to come up with somewhat of a comprehensive list. What are some of the common object lessons that you've heard or learned from the story of Jonah? People don't normally think of this, but when God said that Jonah uh, cared more for this little plant that came up and died than he did for all these people, plus all the animals. Yes. You know, that kind of startled me because usually you think people, people, but God repeatedly through the Bible and right here, Jonah talks about how important the animals are. Places value on them. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't have that one. The fact that he was sleeping so contentedly in the boat <laughs> while the other people were casting lots to find right. causes. Well, and they were praying. Sure. To their gods, but still praying. And these were these were Gentiles. These were unbelievers. What else? How about God has a specific plan or calling for each of us on each of our lives? 
You can't run from God or his plan, or you can run, but you can't hide. Um, I think there's amazing insight into the grace, long-suffering, and patience of God that he wants not even one of his children or his animals to be lost, and he will go to such extraordinary measures to save us. What about the dramatic picture of God's discipline and correction and protection even while we are rebelling? So, um, something in the teacher's notes said, by the end of the lesson, you should be able to comprehend the magnitude of God's love for outsiders and the mission responsibility of insiders. Any thoughts about that statement? I found a lot of references in the lesson to just the term outsiders or the thought outsiders. I didn't like it. I mean, I think, yes. I think it's just always amazing uh, getting to the end of of the book. uh, Jonah states why he ran in the first place. He said, (laughs) I knew you were a gracious God. You know, that's why I didn't want to come here. Right. You'd forgive them, and then I will look like a... I knew you were going to make me a liar. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about that a little bit. (laughs) And about maybe some of the prophetic... uh, tones to that. I don't think that's the last time we're going to hear that. That's what I'm saying. So, uh, the the teachers quarterly summarized the lesson this way. The book of Jonah shines a bright light on the wideness of God's mercy and the depth of his patience, both for pagan sinners, the pagan sinners of Nineveh and the reluctant prophet God chose for his mission. As the drama unfolds, we're left with no doubt that relying on our own wisdom and inclinations is a poor way to approach mission. Only through submission to God's leading can we begin to understand the scope of his mission plan and our role within it. I thought that was really well stated. And isn't that, I mean, for me, isn't that what we're looking for? Aren't we looking, what is our role within God's big picture mission? That's what I want to find out. So let's take a look uh, look at the memory text in Sabbath's lesson. It's not taken from the book of Jonah, but it speaks to the heart of what motivated God to call Jonah to the mission field. It says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. That's from Acts 10, 34 and 35. So we know what this is from. Um... This is Peter speaking to Cornelius after they had both had coordinating visions um, and Peter ended up going to his house and ended up baptizing him and his whole family. So we know even in the New Testament that Jews had some trouble accepting that Gentiles were actually included in God's plan of salvation. But back in Jonah's day, despite repeated statements to the contrary, popular Israelite theology believed that God intended to limit salvation only to his chosen people. So Jonah is the only Old Testament prophet we know of who was directly called to be a foreign missionary. And the four chapters of this brief book give an honest record of both the positives and the negatives in his reluctant pioneering missionary experience. And it really tries to show, I think, Jonah's inner struggle, fear, and what was a very human reaction to God's calling. So Sunday's lesson, 
is entitled The Flawed Prophet. So I didn't really know this. Jonah was born just a few miles from Nazareth, where Christ was born. He had some other interesting parallels to another Galilean prophet to come 750 years later. And the quarterly lists several texts that give us a picture of Jonah that seem to tell him as a study in contrasts. He's a mix of strength and weakness. He's self-willed and rebellious, but actually teachable, eventually obedient. Although he initially runs away from his mission assignment, when he finally steps up to the job, he ends up leading an entire pagan city to conversion. He was loyal to God, courageous, selfless, and willing to die to save the heathen sailors. Obviously believed in prayer, eventually. But he was also narrow-minded, selfish, vindictive. He was a poet and became emotionally attached to a plant. But he could also be callous in the potential destruction of an entire city. So the quarterly calls this, quote, a strange mixture But does anyone else find these descriptions frighteningly familiar? I think it sounds like all of us. Doesn't it sound like all of your children at one time or another? So, yeah, I identify with every single one of these traits. And I I made a hashtag, I am Jonah. And Jonah's uh, one in a long list of flawed prophets, priests, kings, and disciples who were used by God in spite of, or even because of, their character flaws. Get your mind around that. So, to me, our part in vindicating and glorifying God's character is that very real transformation of our hearts and minds and characters that takes place when we are won back to trust and we allow the Holy Spirit in. It's poured out in us. Mrs. White says that our hearts are united with his heart. Our wills are merged in his will. Our minds become one with his mind. Our thoughts are brought into captivity to him. That's one of our favorite quotes out of uh, ST. I don't know what that stands for. Don't we all want that? Exactly. So think about when Moses offered to have his name removed from the book of life in order to save the Israelites. Doesn't it make that testimony much more powerful to know that he started out as a murderer and a reluctant leader? What if we did not know about David's adulterous and murderous past? Peter's cowardice and prejudice. Paul's ISIS-like persecution of the first Christians. To me, it is these traits being transformed, these character corrections, that stand as the most powerful evidence that God exists and that his methods and design principles actually work. So the pink box at the bottom of Sunday's lesson asks, what hope can we draw for ourselves from the fact that God uses flawed and damaged people to work for him in reaching others? You always keep thinking that you have to be perfect first. Absolutely. To me, it is the only hope we have if we have any hope of being involved in that process because it's all of us. I believe it is our testimony of this transforming work in our lives that constitutes the greater things Christ talks about in John 14 when he says, Believe me, 
I am the Father, and my Father is in me. If you can't believe that, believe what you see, these works. The person who trusts me will not only do what I'm doing, but even greater things. Because I, on my way to the Father, am giving you the same work to do that I have been doing. That's our work. This story, our story, of being lost once, now found, blind, now we see, amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. It's not a story Jesus had to tell. He didn't own that story, only we do. Telling that story to others is up to us. Let's look at Monday's lesson. An early missionary. Lori? Yes. You know, you, you started off with a, something that's supposed to be amusing, and, and really when you think about it, in so many instances, God seems to have a sense of humor. And um, so here's a man who was sent against his will, essentially, to um, go to a people that, that were absolutely ruthless mm-hmm. and, and uh, cruel. And... God causes him to be vomited up, in which case, and, and, and that also represents the God that they, that they worship. They mm-hmm. worship the God, God of the sea. Dagon or something mm-hmm. like that, that was the God of the sea. Yep. So he probably appeared in a bleached out form because he was in stomach acid. Sure. So here he is, bleached out, looking like a zombie or something, you know, coming up out of the mouth of a fish, and he, he wins the whole whole city over to him, you know. Right. To me, that, that, is, that speaks to God's sense of humor. I don't disagree. I think there's tons of humor and irony and kind of tongue-in-cheek in this story, for sure. So Monday's lesson, the quarterly makes a point of contrasting God's design or desire for Israel was that they live out their religion, which, of course, all pointed to the plan of salvation. He wanted them to live out their religion so that the nation was so attractive that other nations would actually come to them for guidance, searching for what they had. Wouldn't that be amazing if we could all do that, make our lives a reflection of Christ's love and character so that people would come to us in search of what we have? So Jonah is characterized as a forerunner of the New Testament disciples in as, as much as instead of waiting for folks to come to him, he was told to physically go to Nineveh, just as the disciples were commissioned to go. He was less than excited about this prospect. And to kind of put that into some current perspective, first of all, Nineveh was over 500 miles east of Jonah's hometown. That's not a short walk. It's located in modern-day Iraq. It was a big city, one of the capitals of Assyria, which, by the way, had brutally attacked and conquered Israel in the recent past. This was an event that was still very much alive in Israelite memories. The Quarterly says Jonah imagined it as an unclean center of idolatry, brutality, and totalitarianism. Yeah, Uh, Nahum describes Nineveh as the city of blood, full of lives, full of plunder, never without victims. 
He asked, "Who has not felt your endless cruelty?" So no doubt Jonah was aware that the Assyrians had finely nuanced ways of mass killing and were experts in impaling and mutilating human bodies. Perhaps he felt this was not the ideal location for a public evangelistic campaign. <laughs> and yet God's command was clear. But it wasn't just fear. It wasn't only fear that spurred Jonah's disobedience. Historians tell us that Jonah would have felt a sense of cultural superiority and religious prejudice against the pagan Ninevites. It's a human tendency that is alive and well today, isn't it? As Christian author Anne <clears throat> Lamott puts it in her book Bird by Bird, You can safely assume you have created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people you do. Can you think of any places in the world today that could be described in a similar fashion? Really not much has changed. So it would be like very much be, like being asked today to go be a Christian missionary in Iraq literally Iran Syria Afghanistan yikes and Jonah may have felt too that since they were such a ruthless group they deserved God's punishment <laughs> i think that speaks to, to the cultural superiority especially the fact that they had attacked and conquered the israelites so they had something coming anyway I am not at all surprised that his first reaction was to run in the opposite direction. It makes perfect sense to me. So Jonah 1:3 through 17 <clears throat> reads, "But Jonah got up and went the other direction to Tarshish, running away from God. He went down to the port of Joppa and found a ship headed for Tarshish, which literally was the opposite direction." He paid the fare and went on board, joining those going to Tarshish as far away from God as he could get. But God sent a huge storm at sea, the waves towering. The ship was about to break into pieces. The sailors were terrified. They called out in desperation to their gods. They threw everything they were carrying overboard to lighten the ship. Meanwhile, Jonah had gone down into the hold of the ship to take a nap. He was sound asleep. The captain came to him and said, "What's this?" Sleeping, get up. Pray to your God. Maybe your God will see we're in trouble and rescue us. Then the sailors said to one another, "Let's get to the bottom of this. Let's draw straws to identify the culprit on this ship who's responsible for this disaster." So they drew straws. Jonah got the short straw. Then they grilled him. "Confess why this disaster? What is your work? Where do you come from? What country? What family?" He told them, "I am a Hebrew." I worship God, the God of heaven who made the sea and land. At that the men were frightened, really frightened, and said, "What on earth have you done?" As Jonah talked, the sailors realized that he was running away from God. They said to him, "What are we going to do with you to get rid of this storm?" By this time the sea was wild, totally out of control. <clears throat> Jonah said, "Throw me overboard into the sea. Then the storm will stop. It's all my fault." I'm the cause of the storm. Get rid of me and you'll get rid of the storm. But no, the men tried rowing back to shore. They made no headway. The storm only got worse and worse, wild and raging. Then they prayed to God, "Oh God, 
don't let us drown because of this man's life and don't blame us for his death. You are God. Do what you think is best. Then, then they took Jonah and threw him overboard. Immediately the sea was quieted down. The sailors were impressed, no longer terrified by the sea, but in awe of God. They worshipped God, offered a sacrifice, and made vows. Then God assigned a huge fish to swallow Jonah. Jonah was in the fish's belly three days and nights. So the quarterly again lists out several object lessons that we can glean from these, cha- these verses. None of these was on the original list. So, interestingly, the winds and the waves obey their creator, even when we, his highest form of creation, do not. Lots of evidence of both his design laws and how they work, as well as our freedom. Jonah slept during the storm while even the Gentile crew were praying. Perhaps another forerunner to the New Testament disciples and the Garden of Gethsemane. There was true selflessness and compassion shown on both sides. Jonah was honest in admitting that he caused the calamity. He was willing to sacrifice himself in order to save the others who were strangers. The Gentile sailors showed compassion to Jonah in their reluctance to toss him overboard, even though their own lives were at risk. Jonah testified of the true God and creator, and the amazed sailors actually became Jonah's first converts, even though he was not actively engaged in mission work or soul-seeking. Isn't that interesting when you think about your own lives? And I think we can never underestimate the magnetic power of presenting the creator, designer God as Jonah did. And this was evidenced repeatedly at the general conference session. I'm telling you, I always, I love the emails that Tim shares with us in this class of the people that write to him about how they've been impacted or touched by the message. But it's, it's cyberspace. This gave us the opportunity, and I'm talking about 30 seconds, a minute, five minutes tops, connection with a person looking in their eyes of the people the type of people that send these emails. And it was electric. It was amazing. And even people that had never heard of this message in just a very brief encounter, when you talk about the God of love, you talk about design law, and you talk about the healing that can take place in our minds, it just resonates. People want to know more. All right, so let's move to Tuesday's lesson. Yes. Uh, just one interesting thing to me was it talked about the cast lots. They drew straw right. in the version. You know, we would say, well, that's just a thing of chance. But it's kind of interesting yeah. that God will use whatever means where people are at. Correct. To reveal himself. To, to do it. Even something that would be looked at as a chance thing or everything, because that was the thinking. Exactly. God said, well, I can work through that. Mm-hmm. I can do that. Right. I, I totally agree. And just the concept. I mean, it's very similar to in the New Testament where they came a, a, upon the, the crippled man or the blind man and said, who, who sinned that this man would be blind? You know, he or his parents. Just the fact they were at sea. And a storm came up. It happens. You know what I mean? But the fact that they immediately 
knew or thought somebody on this boat has done something wrong in order to bring calamity. I think that was just the mindset, the darkened mindset of that day. Yes. It seems to me uh, the beauty in this part of the story is the comfort that God is going to have a safety net when we mess up. Right. Because Jonah totally went opposite of what God was asking him to do, and yet God still turned Gave Absolutely. Or gave him a safety net. And we might not like the safety net he gives us any right. than Jonah like the whale. <laughs> right. will bring about a better result. And more than one. I mean, he was constantly working with Jonah to try to, to turn those, those character flaws, the resistance, <laughs> the fear, the prejudice. Yeah. Yes. The other thing that I had always wondered in this story... Yes, Jonah was ready to sacrifice himself, but why did he put the sailors in the position of having to throw him overboard? I, I always thought that that was kind of mean of him. Right. He knew that it was his fault. He knew that if he went overboard that, this, that the storm would calm down. But he put them in the position of having to actually right. throw him over. Instead of just jumping. Like they had, a, they had, had to murder this guy in order for, for God to be appeased. And I, I, that that part has always bothered me. That That's interesting. He, he knew it was his fault. He should have told them, "It's not your fault. God is looking, you know, wanting." He's at yeah. Thing. Let me just get out of the boat, and you guys will be fine. And I think that they would have maybe felt better, right, uh, about the whole situation. You know, they obviously felt guilty for having for sure, to yeah, and didn't want to have to. That's an interesting concept. So maybe he wasn't as selfless. <laughs> so Tuesday's lesson talks about the very pleasant three days and three nights that poor old Jonah must have spent in the gastric or digestive tract of a whale. So the quarterly mentions <clears throat> an interesting tidbit about the phrase three days and three nights. It was news to me. It's an old figure of speech apparently used to express the time needed for the imaginary journey to Sheol, S-H-E-O-L, which is the Hebrew name for the realm of the dead, and was also a symbolic pointer to the death and resurrection of Christ. As written in Matthew twelve forty, Jesus said, you're looking for proof, but you're looking for the wrong kind. All you want is something to titillate your curiosity, satisfy your lust for miracles. The only proof you're going to get is what looks like the absence of proof. Jonah evidence. Like Jonah, three days and nights in the fish's belly, the Son of Man will be gone three days and nights in a deep grave. I'm sort of like the little girl in the story, in my thinking. Uh, While he was in the belly of the humongous fish, was he actually dead? It doesn't appear so. He was thrown out? It doesn't appear so because it says down in the belly of the fish and what I'm guessing looked like a hopeless situation, he finally began some serious prayer. Okay, he was able to pray. Yeah, so he, in the form of a psalm. But it, but it is a forerunner, I think, of Christ. For sure. And the, the three days and nights in the grave. And I'm, I mean, I'm sure he thought nothing good was going to come from that. He thought he was as good as dead. So this prayer that he prayed took the form of a psalm 
and contained a standard five parts of an introduction. He described his distress. There's a cry to God for help. There's a report of God's action. And then there's a promise to keep any vow made and testify to God's saving action. Does that sound like a familiar prayer structure to anyone? It's commonly called the foxhole prayer. Um, So after he made his way back onto dry land, Jonah finally accepted his gospel commission and took God's message to the Gentiles. And in so doing, he actually became the most successful missionary in the Old Testament. The quarterly says, Jonah's rescue witnessed to God's saving mercy. His seaweed-draped arrival on the beach testified to God's determination to save even sinful Assyrians from death. Any thoughts about that statement? As I said, I, I saw a lot of insider and outsider comparisons in this week's lesson that I don't know, I didn't really care for. I mean, they are not even sinful Assyrians. They were God's children. And they were sinful Israelites. I mean, it's all of us. So I don't think those kind of distinctions of insider and outsider are there when it comes to God's saving grace and mercy. Yes. Can I go back and just say something about the three days and three nights? Mm -hmm. I've heard it suggested that it may not um, involve necessarily Jesus' lack of three days and three nights in the in the in his death, Uh but rather his three and a half years of ministry Mm. in the earth. Um, Interesting. Refers to that that he was in the earth three days, and you know maybe that relates to three and a half years. Doing ministry and then returned, left, came out of gotcha, was resurrected. I think that's possible. His time in the tomb, he wasn't really in there three days and three nights, right? Just a little thought. That's very interesting. But since the timing of that has come up, it can also refer to that Jesus was in the hands of of sinful men Mm -hmm. three days. I mean, from the trial to Thursday. Thursday night to Sunday right. morning would be three days. Yeah, he was that would have covered the time the, frame. In the yeah. Right. Any other comments? All right, so we're looking at Wednesday's lesson. They titled Wednesday's lesson "The Nineveh Generation." Lord, you, you refer to uh, the insider-outsider thing mm-hmm. in, in our comparison of ourselves with others. And, I mean, it's just a natural human thing to do. For sure. You know? I mean, you, Paul says, don't compare yourselves among yourselves, and yet we do it all the, all the time. All the time. Yeah. So, you know, naturally, when we expect civilization, we expect the family, we expect society as a whole to, you know, uh, elevate and refine people, when we don't see that mm-hmm. people, then we are beyond disappointed, we right. are disgusted, or we're and look down, or we're angry, and all those things are okay because they're supposed to make you improve somehow. Correct. But by the same token, you have to hold yourself back from 
thinking that you really, really are that much better than exactly. the next person. Exactly. Well, and it should evoke it should evoke compassion. Yeah. You know what? And a desire. And that's, I mean, that's what this whole chapter is talking about. That's what mission is. When is the last time we got really upset about the thought of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people not knowing this message? Where I live, um, which is in Lebanon, Uh it's very obvious to see the outsider-insider kind of way. Yeah. You live on Middle East University campus, which is probably one of the only Adventist places there. Mm -hmm. And... Between among my friends and I, we refer to the university as the bubble uh-huh. because all of us just kind of hang around there. Right. And even the adults and everything, some of them are reluctant to go out into the city. And so the message is repeated over and over. We have to go out to yes. people. But as our society has formed, we like to stay among like people. Of course. And so it's hard to go out to other people. So for Jonah going over, all the way over to Nineveh, that must have been really hard because absolutely he, he was right in the center of all of the mm-hmm. Jews and he was comfortable and he was fine with his own life. Yes. But going out to the other people where you're not sure of how they are or right. you hear what they are, yeah. it's terrifying. Absolutely. So for him, that seems a very logical step of going the opposite direction because we're I agree. We like to stay in our comfort zone. Totally get it. Thank you for that perspective. And I don't know, we have there's there's more bubbles than just yours. We have some bubbles here too. Um so there's two important verbs that the quarterly points out in the Jonah three commission. First is go, second is proclaim. It says go out into the nations Versus expecting other nations to come to you and proclaim. The quarterly says that proclamation has always been important in the Bible and is still the most effective way of spreading the gospel message. You agree or disagree with that? It has to be a combination of your life and your proclamation. Yeah. I think that the interesting thing about Jonah was that, yes, he was, God did make him, uh, no, God didn't make him a liar. Jonah made himself a liar. Right. Because he, he only proclaimed the judgment part of the message. He didn't say, in 40 days, Nineveh will be destroyed unless, unless exactly. he turns to God. And so if he had said that, then, then it would have, he would have been perfectly in line yeah. with God's message. Um, but his, so his life in this case wasn't evidently as important because I'm sure that he wasn't saying this message with, you know, full of love. He was right. still uh, unhappy with these people and didn't really care if they, <laughs> he'd rather that they got destroyed. Yeah. Uh, so in this case, the proclamation was the only thing that mm-hmm. they, they got from this. But generally speaking, you're going to be spending any time with people and among people, your life has to be lining up with any Correct. message that you give. Yeah, even if you're even if you're not proclaiming, I I think a life well lived can be a proclamation. Um Yeah, and does it matter does it matter what gospel you're proclaiming? I kind of think it does. Yeah, it does. So let me read the last several paragraphs in Wednesday's lesson along those lines in case you missed them. It seems like we always end up 
back here sooner or later. God's message is generally threat and promise, judgment and gospel. His stark proclamation was, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. That was judgment. Was it? Yet there was also the promise of hope, of deliverance, of salvation. Even with the everlasting gospel at the heart of it, Revelation 14, 6 through 12 also warns about judgment. Gospel and judgment go hand in hand. The gospel offers us God's way to avoid the condemnation that judgment would justly bring upon us all. Well, judgment, you can be judged innocent or you can be judged guilty. So judgment, uh, instead of us always in the point you're getting to, obviously, is judgment can be a great thing if you're Correct. guilty and you're acquitted. You can be diagnosed healthy or you can be diagnosed terminal as a judgment. So it says... The gospel offers us God's way to avoid the condemnation that judgment would justly bring upon us all. Who is judgment? Obviously, the implication here is that it's God. So, author obviously writing from an imposed law point of view here. But really, what is God's way to avoid the condemnation that tying a plastic bag over our heads would justly bring upon us all. What's his way to avoid that condemnation? Isn't it to take the bag off and be revived? Come back in harmony with the law of respiration? What is God's way to avoid the condemnation that a terminal disease would justly bring upon us all? Treatment for the disease. Treatment. Healing. Removal of the disease. In that line, what Tim talks about all the time, and I guess we, we need to probably even think about even more, is that um, what the, the plastic bag symbolically is essentially the, the deceit, the lies that we mm -hmm. have accepted. And, you know, people don't like to think that they have actually uh, adopted lies. Not at all. Life. I mean, it's it's kind of a, a slap in the face. It's like really rude to tell somebody, you've been living a lie your whole life. But if, that, if it means that somehow they can adjust their analysis or their, their understanding of truth yeah. to make a difference... You know, especially in terms of the heartfelt love for somebody else, for another human being, mm -hmm. then that's good. You know, I, I was thinking that uh, Americans are generally regarded around the world as violent, gun-loving people. Yeah. And based and and controlling or manipulative and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, based on the kind of theology that we've been sort of raised with about being right. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you know, you you become like us or we have basically have the right to kill you. Correct. You know, it's like in, in World War II, um, you know, a guy that a guy that I went to church with years ago said that he, he was in 
uh, units that were kind of out of the mountains, you know, of, of Kentucky, mm-hmm. Tennessee, and West Virginia and stuff. He said they were a bloody bunch. And he said, you know, that that's sort of where the the um, the whole idea of praise the Lord and pass the ammunition comes from. Right. You know? <laughs> In other words, you you be like us and you'll be okay. Right. If you're not, you know. Yeah. So, no preaching of the gospel is fully effective unless judgment is taught. This is from the quarterly again. Political correctness, which leads to a watering down of these stark elements and downplaying differences between religions or even between different Christian traditions, is risky. Though in mission, we need to adapt our presentation for the people we are trying to reach, we must never do so at the expense of the message God has given us to proclaim. I have written in my notes, sigh. I mean, this, this, that makes me very sad. Um, Somehow the, the default definition of judgment has become a punishment from God. Correct. And really the biblical definition of judgment <clears throat> is not that at all. Not at all. You know, it's, it's the, the orphans, the widows, the poor, the needy. Right. And I mean, Tim has talked about it. It, it makes sense with the, the history of language, the Latin origins, the fact that almost all the translators were lawyers. You know what I mean? It makes sense why that has carried down, but it's, it's insidious. So, I thought this was interesting. There's a blurb in the, in the Teacher's Quarterly about the decline in mission support in our own denomination. It says, if Sabbath school mission offering trends are any indicator, then the grand narrative of global outreach has indeed lost a great deal of its shine for Seventh-day Adventists. In 1932, during the midst of the Great Depression, Per capita giving to the church's Sabbath school mission offerings was $5.83 per member for a year. More than 80 years later, with wages exponentially higher, the per capita mission giving was actually lower and averaged $4.81 per member in 2010. So what attitudes do we think might be driving that trend? And is it possible that the attitude and message in the previous paragraph might be driving it. You know what I mean? Do you think there's a strong support for carrying what may be a a damaging message about God to more and more people? All right, so we're close on time. We won't talk about Jonah's lament but again, the hashtag was repeated, I am Jonah, for the whining and complaining. But uh, do we have any, any comments before we close? I appreciate your participation today. But he was not struggling the tree. He the shade over his head, so he didn't have to lament anymore. He's trying to tell Jonah, get up and move on to the next place. Yeah, I think he wanted to give him a little perspective mm-hmm. on... Uh, you've it's done, like You've done what I set out to do. 
and praise the Lord and move on. That's correct. Thanks again. Oh, yes, I want a closing comment. The, the other interesting thing about this, this book of Jonah is that Jonah had to be the one to write it. So it means yeah. that he was he was ready to to lay it all out and show his flaws and show how right. he listened to God. So in the end, although it doesn't end on that note, uh, maybe he didn't really want to praise himself by saying, I finally learned my lesson. Yeah. Then it seems like he did and that he he accepted the, the God that was shown to him. Right. Yes, I am. I am merciful and and I love and he must have realized that even himself, the way that he was, was not a lovable person. Right. He realized that, that God loved him anyway. That grace and mercy extended to him. And so I'm just grateful that, that Jonah was ready to be so uh, exposed and right. so open. No, so the, list, the lesson mentioned see. that several times is that typically an author would gloss over maybe some of the, the uglier moments or the things that, that made him look not so great but the whole book was written in a very vulnerable open and honest way so i mean like i said i i those stories are in there for us because we are jonah you know what i mean so we can figure out that perfect character perfect behavior is not required but perfect willingness is required that's powerheads father god we appreciate uh you being here in our class today uh pray a blessing over each person here and the families represented. Uh, we pray again a uh, blessing on the folks that are still at General Conference and hope that every every contact, every interaction with people that have been made there and every piece of material that's been disseminated uh, does not return without your will being done. And we will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.